From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell. Today, members of Congress are enjoying a holiday break, but anticipating a busy new year. The House and Senate adjourn for the year without reaching agreement on major issues. When they return, they'll only have 10 days to avoid a partial government shutdown. I'm Bill Nygut. Georgia progressives are heading into 2024 with some big concerns. We'll talk to the leader of the Union for Domestic Workers, who says that making health care and child care more affordable is something that has to happen. Meanwhile, we also know that Democrats are worried that Joe Biden's campaign here may not be catching fire. We'll talk about the 2024 agenda from perspectives on the right and the left today with Southwest Georgia Congressman Buddy Carter and Executive Director of Care in Action, Hillary Holly. And it's Friday, which means we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, and we'll tell you who we think is up and down for the week. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome to the AJC's Politically Georgia, setting the stakes and the agenda for Georgia politics every weekday morning. I am joined by Bill Nygut. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Tia. It's so, good to be with you today. It's good to be with you, too. We are holding it down on this Friday. And let's start off. There was a bombshell report out of the Detroit News. It hit last night. Folks are talking about it this morning. There's yet another recording of a Trump call. This one was placed to election officials in Wayne County, Michigan. Again, Trump trying to get them to overturn the results of the 2020 election. It evokes the infamous Raffensperger call here in Georgia, right, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. When uh, uh, Trump asked uh, Raffensperger to find 11,000 plus votes, to make him the winner. He talked to these uh, two Wayne County election officials. He said, we got to fight for our country. He asked them not to certify the Wayne County election uh, results for uh, Biden. What's interesting, though, in addition, is that Ron McDaniel, of course, the chair of the Republican National Committee, was also on the phone. She uh, also asked them, do not sign off on the official findings of the election, the official outcome of the election. And the reason, of course, that's of interest to us here in Georgia is that uh, Rona McDonald, McDaniel, could very easily become a witness in Fonnie Willis's con election conspiracy case against Donald Trump and his allies. And again, because of the way in which the conspiracy law works in Georgia, she can reach out to other states to add to the conspiracy. And perhaps this is one more sign of evidence of Trump trying to overturn the election illegally. Yeah. And I think I've read some places that some people who, you know, the Raffensperger call 
was find the votes, you know, and and although many people saw it was troubling, there were people who said, well, Trump didn't necessarily have a call to action so that this Wayne County call is potentially more problematic because he doesn't just say, I think this election was invalid. I think you should overturn it. He actually tells these election officials what he thinks they should do, which is not sign these papers. And then we know that afterwards they actually didn't sign and they even tried to reverse their vote from earlier today to certify the election. Do you think this is more problematic for the former president, Bill? You know, obviously I'm not a lawyer, but it certainly seems as though he called for more direct action, as did Chairwoman McDaniel in uh, in uh, Wayne County, Michigan. So, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch how this plays into uh, the case here and and what happens up in uh, Wayne County and in the state of Michigan uh, it, as uh, law enforcement up there looks at uh, at this. Yep. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that. And let's pivot to our first guest. So, Bill, we're looking forward to the new year, but members of Congress, maybe not so much because <laughs> they've got a lot on their plate to tackle They've got um, we've talked about the government shutdown deadline, which will be only 10 days after they return. They're still working on immigration policy. We're still talking about aid for Ukraine and Israel. Let's bring in U.S. Representative Buddy Carter. Representative Carter, good morning. Good morning, Tia. Good morning, Bill. Good to be with you all. Thank you so much for joining us. So I want to start off by saying you are a new resident of St. Simon Island. How is that new address treating you? Well, it's great. We love the island. We've wanted to be on the water for many years now and and finally found a place. Uh, of course, we're going to maintain a place in Savannah. That's my home where I've lived all my life. But at the same time, it's uh, eventually we'll be down at St. Simon's and retire down there. So, you know, that's within sight for us now. So speaking of retirement, well, before we get to the retirement talks from some of your colleagues, let's talk about that busy January. Um, so much on your plate. How is it going to get done? And should we worry about a potential shutdown on January 19th? Well, you're right, uh, Tia. We've got a lot to do in a short period of time. As you know, we took the laddered approach, if you will, what's been referred to as the laddered approach, where we've got four appropriation bills that have to be done by January 19th, and we've got to have those done. And, and when I say we've got to have them done, we've got to have them passed out of the House, passed out of the Senate, signed by the president, and to go into effect. Otherwise, we'll have to have another continuing resolution, which the speaker has already made clear that he is not going to be in favor of any more short term CRs. And, and I, I hold him at that. I, I think he's serious. He does not want to do anymore. So that means we've got to have this done by January 19th. Another thing to keep in mind about that as to the immediacy of it is that you know, it takes staff a while to get this done. I mean, this is not like we can pass it the, the, the night of the 18th and all of a sudden it takes effect on the 19th. Uh, this is they, They've got to have time to put all these figures together. That may take anywhere from, you know, three to five to seven days for them to put it together. So that just shows you how much work we've got to do on those bills. And then we've got eight more that will become due on February 2nd. Otherwise, 
again, the government shuts down. And, you know, I, 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 I don't want to see a government shutdown. I, I don't I, I don't want to see that. But I, I want us to make sure that we are avoiding it in a responsible way. Because as I've always said, a shutdown is not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen would be for us to continue with this reckless spending that is right now got us almost $34 trillion in debt. That's got to stop. Congressman, uh, you're going to be moving into uh, uh, the legislative year with an even slimmer majority than you ended with. George Santos is now gone. Kevin McCarthy is now gone. And the question becomes, given the margins, whether you believe that once again, it's going to be the far right members of your party, which you have not been a party to for the most part, is it the, those few far right members who are going to have an awful lot of control and say over what happens in uh, talks about the budget? How can you come to a reasonable solution? And as you say, Speaker Johnson doesn't want a short-term solution. How can there be a negotiation with the White House with those outliers, those far-right-wing members of your party, continuing to hold a measure like that hostage to some of their demands? Well, that's a great question and a great point, because we've already experienced that with, with a slim margin that is going to get even slimmer. As you mentioned, Kevin McCarthy is gone. George Santos is gone. We are fixing, and we're about to lose Bill Johnson from Ohio. He'll be gone in January, or maybe in February, but he'll be gone very soon. Our majority will be down to one. One. <laughs> that's, that, that's the definition of a slim majority. And, and we've got to deal with that. And this is going to be very, very difficult. And, and judging from what we've experienced thus far, you know, can we get it done? Yes, we can get it done if the resolve is there to get it done. But, you know, it's going to take a lot of people giving, giving in on some of their demands. There's no question about that, and particularly those on the far right, as you point out. So l let me talk about this past year, Congressman, and hope that it's not uh, instructive of what next year looks like. I, first of all, I want to say that I joined Tia in really being grateful that you accept her invitations to join us uh, on this show, because it really does give us an opportunity to talk about the Republican side, uh, particularly of the U.S. House. So with that in mind, let's talk about a story that's gotten a reasonable degree of attention in recent days, especially since you've all uh, recessed for the rest of 2023. In 2023, as you know, Congress passed 27 measures that became laws. One of those created a commemorative coin. Two of them renamed medical centers in the United States. And it's been called the least productive year since the Great Depression. Um, I know there, that there are people who believe that less government is better but it does strike me, Congressman, that I, I, I'm wondering what you think is going wrong that 
you all can't accomplish more. 27 laws is, um, I think you'd have to agree, uh, really troubling. Well, you know, look, I, I wouldn't be truthful if I didn't tell you I'm disappointed. I am disappointed at our performance over the past year. I felt like you know, I've always felt like divided government was better government. And I'd always gone back to the Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan to to Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich and thinking, wow, you know, they all got a lot done and and we got an opportunity to get a lot done here. But it really there are a number of reasons. First of all, the slim majority, as we've already talked about. Secondly, you do have divided government and it hasn't worked as well as I had hoped that it would work. And then third, you've got some of these outliers um, that, you know, the, the far right that, uh, look, I, I agree with them about our budget. I, I'm, you know, I consider myself a budget hawk. I understand where they're coming from. But we have got to get past this mentality of letting perfect get in the way of good and letting perfect get in the way of very good. We've had an opportunity to do some very good things. And, and yet it's not perfect and it's never going to be perfect. And they let that hold us up. So there's there's a number of reasons that we haven't been as productive, although thank you for making that point that I agree with, and that is less government is better government. I don't <laughs> think that we should be judged on necessarily the number of bills that we pass. And we have passed some good bills out of the House, H.R. 1, lower energy costs, H.R. 2, dealing with the border, H.R. 5, dealing with um, with education. All of those were good good legislative initiatives that we passed out of the House. Now, they've got stuck in the Senate, and, and you know, that's a problem in, in and of itself. But, it, again, to say that I haven't, that I've, that I've not been disappointed, I think, would not be truthful. I have been somewhat disappointed in our performance this first year, but there's always hope. We've still got another year of this session, and my hope is that we can still get a lot of well, Congressman, I, I, I'm I know Tia wants to jump back in, but she's very generously allowed me to ask you one final question before we move on. You you talk about the bills that you did pass. Um, here's the problem, as you know. You passed the measures you did pass, and you, you did pass, I think, 700-some bills onto the Senate. The problem with the ones you mentioned and most of the others is you passed them almost entirely on partisan votes without real democratic support. So they go to the Senate um, where, you, where you've got a virtually uh, evenly divided Senate where you need 60 votes to pass and your measures in the House like H.R. 1 and the others are so far to the right, many people feel, that they can't even win 60 votes. They can't even win enough Republican votes in the Senate to become law. Well, look, I love H.R. 1. I love H.R. 2, especially. I, that southern border I consider to be one of the biggest problems that we've got in this country right now, next to our debt, of course. But at the same time, you know, while I'm home in the district, that's what people are talking about. I mean, my goodness, $34 trillion in debt? You know, what, what about my children's Social Security? What about my grandchildren? And you know, are they going to have to pay off all this debt? That, they're concerned about that, and with good reason. That's something that we have to address. But, you know, in H.R. 1, lower energy costs, I would I would submit to you that one of the biggest problems with our economy right now is the uh, the, the, the the administration has declared war on fossil fuels, causing 
the inflation that has resulted, the increase in, in, in energy prices. And that has, is what has caused this inflation that we're experiencing right now and that's such a drag on our economy. So we, we've addressed through policy, through good policy, exactly what we need to. I'm not going to apologize for good, what I consider to be good policy. And I certainly, and I, and I think I reflect um, a, a good many of my Republican colleagues, I am sick and tired of trying to legislate depending on what the Senate may or may not accept. It's time for us to do our job in the House. And then the Senate, whatever they're going to do, they're going to do. But I am not going to legislate depending on, oh, if it gets to the Senate, it'll never pass. No. I'm going to I'm going to legislate on policy. So, Rep. Carter, on that note, though, I want to bring it home a little bit, bringing back to this government funding issue with, a, I think you said five different appropriations bills would need to be passed by January 19th to avoid a shutdown. There's real concern that if the House and the Senate can't reach an agreement, um, that there could be across the board cuts to agencies if the, the agreement isn't reached. I think. April is when those across the board cuts would go into effect. That includes defense, right? It, it does include that unless we can pass the defense bill by itself. Keep in mind, you know, everybody thinks, oh, you got to pass all 12 bills. Well, if we can get, you know, if we can get some of these bills passed and pass the Senate and signed by the president, then that will go into effect for those agencies and that will help us. But that is a great point you make, Tia, and it's, it's almost as if you're at the Capitol and understand what's going on. But, um, but that's a great point you make, that this was part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. This was part of the negotiation to raise the debt ceiling. And that was Thomas Massey from Kentucky proposed that if we continue, if we have continued resolutions through April, that automatically a 1% cut will start across the board. And that's something to help give us a stimulus to get our work done. Because when you have a 1% cut across the board, that's going to impact everybody. And and on those same lines, you talked about your frustration with some of the members of Far Right. You talked about them kind of abandoning good for the sake of perfect in their minds. Um, your colleague, Representative Drew Ferguson, um, who represents kind of West Georgia, South Metro Atlanta, has announced he won't be back for another term. He's decided he'd rather retire and enjoy his family. Were you surprised by his announcement? What are your thoughts that so many, I think the numbers up to a few dozen um, members of the House aren't coming back. They say they're, they're tired of the drama, a lot of them. Well, and T, I think you're going to see that number rise. I think you can see that, um, that number increase, and, and especially after Christmas, after everyone gets home and enjoys their family at Christmas. Look, Drew Ferguson is a, is a great congressman. He has served the 3rd District in, in the area that he represents in West Georgia, He's done an outstanding job, and, and not only is he a great congressman, he's also a good friend, and I, I'm going to miss him dearly in our delegation. But the people of Georgia and the people of this country are going to miss people like Drew Ferguson, and it's it's unfortunate, but I'm happy for Drew. Uh, he's very happy he and Julie are doing great, and um, putting their blended family together, and I'm just so happy for him. and. And and who can blame him? You know, it's 
I'll be quite honest um, to you. I, I tell people all the time, and I mean this sincerely, the, the, the shine hasn't worn off for me. I'm still excited every time I go back up there. But I will be quite honest with you. This drama surrounding the speakership and everything that happened there, that got to be a drain. And I, there were times when I was thinking to myself, you know, what am I doing up here? And, and what are we doing up here? That was tough on all of us. So, Congressman, I'm curious about one other aspect of all this. Um, uh, you have now endorsed uh, Donald Trump for re-election, of course. Um, and um, we've talked on this show a number of times about why, up until very recently, uh, so many uh, Republicans, prominent Republicans in the state, had withheld their endorsement of uh, Trump, hadn't quite committed yet. And one of the things we talked about was the fact, well, Governor Kemp, uh, a, the most powerful figure in state politics, clearly is a, an opponent of Donald Trump's, does not support Donald Trump, and that there might be some concerns that if you jump in and back Trump, you could find yourself at odds with Governor Kemp on issues that might matter to you. How do you uh, square that circle. What are your thoughts when you endorse Trump in terms of what it means down the road to your relationship with Governor Kemp? Well, first of all, I have endorsed uh, President Trump, and I do believe he's going to be our candidate. He is uh, a wide margin of, of the lead right now, and, and I think he is the one that um, is going to to do it stands the best chance of 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 winning the presidency back, and that is essential. Look, elections have consequences because policies have consequences. I love Donald Trump's policies. I love them. Um, you know, does, is it of concern to me that he and the governor, uh, you know, obviously have differences? Sure it is. I, I support Governor Kemp. I, I served with, with Brian Kemp and, and appreciate his service and think he's done a great job. But at the same time, Brian Kemp has also said that if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee, that he will support him as well. So we got to stay focused on the prize. And the prize is the, the president and the executive branch and, and the president's office. That's what we've got to concentrate on. We have got to get our policies in here because I'm telling you, we are right on policy. We are right on policy. And that's what we have to keep in mind. Real quick, Congressman, do you agree with uh, Donald Trump that immigrants are poisoning the blood of this country? Well, I, I don't know the context in which that that statement was made. But you've uh, heard it over and I, over I, I again. You know what he's saying. Advocate everything. Well, and, and obviously I don't agree with that. And But at the same time, I do agree that we've got to do something about that border. That border, is, it, you know, when I'm at home, the number one question I get right now is, buddy, how can you justify sending money to Ukraine to secure their border or to any other country to secure their border when our border is not secure? And you know what? I don't have an answer for them. I, I, I can't justify it. That's why we've got to secure that border. Not only are there illegals coming across that border, but there's also terrorists coming across that border, 279 that we know of thus far. And, and that's not counting the getaways. There was 1.7 million getaways. How many of those were terrorists? 
let me tell you, we're going to have another 9-11 event in this country, and it's going to be from somebody who came across that border. Not only that, but the illegal drugs, the fentanyl that's coming across that border. Enough fentanyl in this country to kill over 3 billion people. We cannot allow this to happen. All right. Well, we're going to leave that as the final word. Thank you so much for joining us from the road today, Representative Carter. Happy holidays. And we know we will keep hearing from you. Merry Christmas, buddy Carter. Merry Christmas to y'all. Thank y'all so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. We appreciate you coming in and and answering the questions. And it's not just Republicans who have a busy 2024 ahead. Progressives are ironing out their agenda as well. Just ahead, we'll talk to the executive director of Care in Action, a domestic workers union, about where she sees Georgia going next year. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to the AJC's Politically Georgia. I'm Tia Mitchell, along with Bill Nygut. Bill, we just talked to longtime Republican Buddy Carter, so now it's time to reach to the other side of the aisle and talk to progressive Democrat Hillary Hawley, she is the executive director of Care in Action, but she's also worked for the Democratic Party of Georgia and Stacey Abrams Fair Fight Organization. Hillary, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. So let's get, first of all, tell us, because I don't know how many people are familiar with Care in Action. What does the organization do and what is on your group's agenda for 2024? Yes. So um, I'm here representing two organizations today. So first is the National Domestic Workers Alliance, where we represent over 300,000 nannies, house cleaners, and child care workers across the country, including here in the great state of Georgia, my home, and where I will live for the rest of my life. Um, and I also am the executive director of Care in Action, which is the political arm for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. So at Care in Action, we work with our sister organization, NDWA, to help um, pass the care agenda, which means making sure that nannies, house cleaners, and child care workers and home care workers um, get fair pay, access to insurance, and all the other great um, you know, labor protections that the rest of the workers in this country um, have the right to, and also making sure that um, our communities who depend on child care and home care and um, other care needs um, can afford the care so they can work and live in dignity. And so we have been in Georgia now for seven years. The, de- the domestic worker movement started here in Georgia in the late 1800s. So we're just building on the backs of those wonderful women. So I find it so interesting that, you know, when you think about care, and caregivers, domestic workers, the people who are in our hotels and hospitality, 
um, long-term care workers. But you you guys talk a lot about child care. And I think you just brought it home. You need child care so that people can go to work. But why is child care, and particularly affordability, um, federal subsidies, why is that such a pillar of your agenda, particularly on a federal level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we like to say that care work, which includes child care, is the, is the work that makes all other work possible. Child care is workforce infrastructure, point blank, period. And so in this country um, right now, the we have a child care crisis. Um, not only can families not afford child care, but there are not enough child care workers. So for example... Right now, um, we are hitting a child care cliff. Um, a lot of emergency federal funding came into um, states, thanks to the Biden-Harris administration, to help protect and make child care more affordable for working families. And that those emergency funds have now expired. So what does that look like, for example, in the state of Georgia? We are seeing 80,000 children right now losing child care across the state. Um, and we are looking at seeing over 900 child care providers closing just due to the federal funding, right? And so this is on top of a crisis. We had a child care crisis in this country before the pandemic. And what the pandemic did is really highlight um, the, what, um, the crisis that we are seeing. And oftentimes when we're out talking to voters, and this is why I'm you know, I'm sure the congressman who was on here before, whenever we're around um, going around the state of Georgia, the first thing that voters always bring up is I cannot work because I cannot either afford child care or I cannot find child care. And so this is a critical, critical crisis that we have to address both on a federal level and on a state level. Uh, Hillary, uh, the White House does have a $16 billion, I think, is the right amount domestic funding request, which I assume you and your organization support. But I'm not quite clear on what that $16 billion covers and whether you think it's enough. Yes. So first, so yes, um, we fought really hard to ensure that the White House made that request to Congress. The $16 billion, what it would do is it would add another year of that emergency funding that the child care providers and families got in 2021. So the way that that money works is twofold, because like I said, if you're addressing child care, you have to address the affordability for families and you have to make sure that you're supporting the providers. So what that funding will do is it will help working families who are making below a certain um, pay be able to apply and receive um, subsidized childcare. And what some of that funding does is goes directly to childcare providers so they can keep their doors open. Um, I remember um, WSB TV back in September, Bill, um, ran this really heartbreaking segment in Georgia showing um not only the families saying, I just got a letter saying that in a couple of weeks, I'm no longer going to qualify for this um, for this rate of childcare, And they were having to consider quitting their jobs. And then they then shoot to that child care provider by saying, if I don't get that monthly income that was from this emergency funding, I'm going to have to close my doors. 
So the $16 billion is a lifeline. To It's a Band-Aid um, and it is a lifeline. And that is why at Care in Action, we're politicizing this and we're bringing this to voters because what we need in addition to the $16 billion is comprehensive year-long um, investments um, into, or, you know, multi-year investments in childcare. So, so Hillary, where does that uh, proposal stand as you stack up what Congress is going to be looking at in 2024? Where does that come into play? And, and more important than that, why do you believe uh, you can convince Republicans that they need to support this measure, uh, especially in the House? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I actually just am back from being on the Hill this week. Um, and we are going to bring the fight. Um, earlier this month, uh, we had um, House Mi uh, Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries join us, SCIU, and other labor organizations, really demanding his colleagues across the aisle to prioritize this $16 billion investment going into the new year. Um, and so we are going to bring that fight very loud, very clear into Congress. Um, we are going to be mobilizing child care workers and folks who desperately need child care to be calling their state or their um, federal representatives to ensure that it's not buried right in this foreign policy and um, you know in this border funding fight. And I think one thing that we we also know that even Republicans understand that child care is workforce investment. A couple months ago, um, there was um, a few GOP um, presidential debates ago. Child care, a child care question was brought up in the first 15 minutes of that debate. And you all know if you are asking that question in the first 15 minutes of a debate, that is clearly signaling that it's top of mind. And one of the Republicans on the stage even said, Child care is workforce um, workforce infrastructure. And we need people to continue to go back to work, right? We are still behind and um, and bringing back that strong workforce that we saw before the pandemic. The Biden-Harris administration has done an incredible job. But if we don't continue building upon the, these care needs, we're going to see that we're going to see continued stagnation. So, Hillary, let's talk a little bit about the Biden administration. I know, you know, from talking to you over the years, you are pretty progressive and but you're a Democrat, true and true. You've supported the Democratic candidates in Georgia and beyond. We hear all this hand wringing that certain segments of the Democratic coalition are being turned off, not just on these uh, issues like, you know, the loss of COVID subsidies during the COVID pandemic, the in inaction on federal election laws, the inaction on student debt relief or limited action on student debt relief. What are you hearing, particularly when it comes to voters of color, when it comes to, uh, I guess, the labor segment of the Democratic coalition, and when it comes to young voters, what are you hearing what are you telling the Biden White House about this coalition and, and, and the concerns? Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing is with what I tell the Biden-Harris administration is we need to tell our story of what was we were able to do when it comes to the, the $4 trillion of investments that they made into these communities. 
we have to get out into these rural communities and let them know what resources are available to them. Because what typically happens, Tia, is these $4 trillion investments come into the states, and then we either see the states, some states, like Georgia, withhold federal funding, or when they use the federal funding, they take a lot of credit for it. We see Brian Kibb doing this almost every single day. Or we see um, the voters in the rural areas just not knowing that access is available to them. When it comes to the labor, um, I think um, labor unions and labor members, you know, in Georgia, we we organize workers, but it's really hard to unionize workers in the state because of the right. But labor, they they see some of these incremental um changes and steps that the Biden-Harris administration has taken. And they really understand that if we reelect Biden and Harris, we can continue seeing process, um, growth and um, progress happening. However, um, it is very hard to understand um, or to, to explain to voters um, the nuance that's happening on the Hill, right? So for example, when it, when young voters highly, highly upset about not getting student loans um, um, eliminated. Um, but, you know, the Biden-Harris administration attempted to, and then we saw right-wing people come in and litigate it, and it is now in the Supreme Court. Why do we have the Supreme Court that we do right now? You have to look to the Trump administration, who got to appoint several justices, right? These are very nuanced conversations that we're going to have to bring to voters next year. Um, it's going to be hard, but it's on us. Hillary, there are increasing concerns among some Democrats that uh, that the Biden campaign has not started organizing in key battleground states. Um, Michigan uh, is often cited as one of them, and Georgia as another. Um, and and that does seem to be the true uh, Theron, truth. Uh, Theron Johnson a uh, prominent, you know, activist in Democratic Party politics and in presidential campaigns was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said, "Don't worry, they're going to build out a team here uh, soon." But um, in the meantime, uh, you know as well as I do that President Biden's polling numbers are not uh, very positive. There are questions about whether Black voters are really going to be energized to turn out and vote for him in the numbers that are uh, needed. Um, the Israel-Hamas war is also cutting into uh, the the voters who might turn to him. Typically, I, it it right now a year out, there are many reasons for Democrats to be nervous about what can happen in Georgia and nationally. Yes, yes, absolutely. Everything you're saying is one hundred percent true, and I agree. However, what I know in Georgia is the organization, what truly motivates voters and the get out the vote um, um, movements that we have seen in Georgia over the past five years, and I would say since 2018 really, are done by the outside organizations. Um, organizations like Care in Action, the one that I run, but also Black Voters Matter, um, Mi Gente, Asian American Advocacy Fund, the Black Male Initiative, all working families parties. Every single year, those organizations are the ones who are truly talking to voters. And those organizations have been doing that all this year. It's literally happening right now. People are still working, talking to voters right now and really upping that. 
And then what oftentimes happens is then we see the Democratic Party and all the different committees start to invest in what we call the field operations. So 100%, we need the Democratic Party to scale up right now. But what I know and what I have seen is the outside organizations continue continue to be the organizations that get the job done. And so I, I always like to, I've talked to this about with Tia and Greg all the time. If you're covering the state of Georgia, you have to look at what the outside organizations are doing because we always bring it home. Well, we're going to have to stop it here for now, but we will be talking to you in 2024, Hillary Holly. So wishing you happy holidays and a happy new year. Yes, happy holidays. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll answer your viewer questions in the listener mailbag segment. And we'll also give you our who's up and who's down for the week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of Black people. It's a product of Black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. We at Politically Georgia love hearing from our listeners. So we set up the Politically Georgia call-in hotline that you can call anytime, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Record your questions or your comments. We will play them back every Friday during one of our favorite segments of the week, the listener mailbag. So, producer Shaney B., what is on our callers' minds this week? Oh, we got all kinds of things on callers' minds. But before we start, I just want to, uh, for, for everybody who celebrates, I would just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Otherwise, I hope everybody has happy holidays and looks forward to a happy, healthy, successful 2024. Amen to that, brother. Amen to that. By the way, the number, we got to give out the number to the Politically Georgia listener hotline. It is 404 526 AJCP 404-526-2527. I hope I did that right because I just rattled it rattled that off I the top of my head. Right. Uh, or dial information. If information still exists these days. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's get to it. Our first call comes from Roger in Atlanta. He asks about Georgia's budget surplus. I'm curious to know more about how the state has such a large budget surplus. I think many states have surpluses, too. My question is this. Since 2021, how much of the surplus is attributed to COVID relief and other federal government subsidies? Has there ever been a pie chart or some equivalent graphic showing the role federal dollars played compared to traditional sources of state revenue? Thank you. I enjoy the show very much and happy holidays to all. 
So I'm going to start by giving a shout out to AJC budget guru, James Salzer. He is our person who knows everything about everything about the state budget. And if you're not reading his stuff, you got to. Um, and he's been writing about the surplus. Um, so I am going to, some of it is just state tax collections are up. Um, but you cannot separate the state dollars from the federal dollars. And that's not just a COVID thing. The state states in general get a lot of money from the federal government. So um, when states have surpluses, you can't discount that they're getting money from the federal government. We do know that federal government went up a lot um, during the coronavirus pandemic. So um, I'll read you something from, uh, this is what James Salzer wrote. Um, he's, the state has a $16 billion surplus. And a couple of months ago, this is how James Salzer wrote about it. This comes after the state ended the past fiscal year on June 30th with a surplus of $5.3 billion, which came a year after the state ended the previous fiscal year with a $6.6 billion surplus. The most recent surplus was due in large measure to Kemp's extremely conservative estimates for tax collections, which the state exceeded in fiscal 2023. So again, most of the budget surplus is because Kemp was conservative and got a lot much more in state taxes than he anticipated. Anything else you want to add, Bill? No, I, I think you've said it all. I do think we have to point out that uh, conservative uh, uh, spending and conservative budget estimates help. The Inflation Reduction Act money uh, certainly gave the state a big, big pad that allowed them uh, to to put away uh, uh, enormous amounts of money as well. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for the question. What's next, Shaney B? Next, we hear from Phil in Roswell. In my opinion, Drew Ferguson not running would allow this special master to effectively redraw and fulfill Judge Jones's order. And because it's right on that side of town. But as a Democrat, it always seems that we do this too close to the election, so they put a stay on it rather than allowing us to have the actual election. So I hope they can do this in time for 2024. Well, I really thank you very much for that call. Drew Ferguson's uh, retirement really does not have anything to do at this point with what federal judge Steve Jones is going to rule on, because what Judge Jones did was to ask the legislature to redraw uh, congressional and state legislative maps uh, uh, in the congressional uh, map to add one black district. It is certainly true that had Drew Ferguson announced his retirement before that special session started, it could have played into how the legislature redrew the congressional map but what Judge Jones has in front of him now is a map without regard to Drew Ferguson's uh, district, uh, 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 without without regard to Drew Ferguson being in that district. And so he'll decide the matter on the basis of that. Yes, it comes close uh, to an election year, but the judge has set, he did set a very tight timeline 
for the state to redraw the maps. They complied with that timeline. This week, he already had the one-day hearing to determine whether or not these maps are legal. And by mid-January, we expect to hear a ruling from him. So election officials say it's going to be tight, but they will be able to uh, make decisions in terms of ballots and the like with this time frame. And we should note our colleague Maya Prab, who was in a hearing just this week on the topic, and it looks like Judge Jones is ready to make a ruling in order for new maps to be in place by those January deadlines. So we'll stay tuned to that. So that is it for our listener mailbag. But again, please call in um, and give us more every Friday. We'll be able to answer your calls. So we only have a couple of minutes left to talk about our who's up and who's down. Bill, kick it off for us. I had to let the music play a little bit. Don't want to step on those jams. Um, Bill, Let's start off. Who's down for the week in your mind? Uh, The Georgia State Election Board. um, They had a raucous group, an overflow crowd at their last meeting of uh, basically MAGA election deniers who uh, were uh, uh, demanding that they investigate Brad Raffensperger for the way in which he conducted the 2020 election. And it struck me that at three years later, the fact that the board voted two to two actually split on this question, which did uh, kill it for the time being, at least, uh, is uh, what more do they need? It should have been four zero against an investigation. And so for that reason, I think the election board is down. And that was a two two party line split, if I if I recall right. Um, my who's down is going to be Rudy Giuliani. He was found liable for paying Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, those former Fulton election workers, for defaming them. He was fined $148 million. And then he, the next day, declared bankruptcy and said he doesn't have it. So um, Rudy Giuliani not doing too well. It's hitting him in the pocketbooks. But we'll see how that plays out as far as Freeman and Moss getting their money. All right, let's pivot to who's up this week. Bill, if yours is sentimental, I'll do mine first because mine is my beloved Florida Agricultural and Mechanical (laughs) University Rattlers. I gave them their props on Monday, but yep, they're my who's up because we won the Celebration Bowl. But we're up because when I tell you The FAMU Nation has been trash-talking all week, posting their photos from the Mercedes-Benz Stadium all week, talking about how amazing FAMU is all week. If I wasn't a Rattler fan, I would hate us too. We've been obnoxious (laughs) this week. Um, So one time for the Rattlers. Go ahead, Bill. Who's your who's up? Well, T.A., it's hard not to make Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman the who's up for the week. Uh, they f- confronted Rudy Giuliani. They got that $148 million settlement, and he may never be able to pay it. But the fact of the matter is that in that courtroom, they made Rudy Giuliani look like a disgrace. And that alone is uh, worthy of uh, their being up for the week. One other quick thing, Tia, we're up. You, Patricia Murphy, Greg Bluestein, and I, we have been able to start 
this radio program at WABE. We all have wonderful jobs at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and next year will be a huge year for us. And I am just thrilled with the way we're moving forward as a team to cover politics in Georgia. And we have such a wonderful group of listeners out there. Um, so I think we all are winners this week. And I'm going to quote a famous philosopher philosopher who said, if it's up, it's stuck. And that means when you're up and you got it, you stay up forever. <laughs> and that famous philosopher's name is Belkalis Marlinis Almansar. Oh but you gosh. all know her as Cardi B. Oh. And with that, I will end the show. Thank you so much for spending time with us today on Politically Georgia. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta weekdays at 10 a.m. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every weekday afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again tomorrow for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mm-hmm.